Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. As 2020 draws to an end and the holiday festivities are upon us, this podcast is actually dropping on Christmas Day. And so it seemed very fitting that we take a minute to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and say a sincere thank you to everyone that continues to be Louisiana Bowhunter. Louisiana Bowhunter, the brand, is you guys. The guys that contribute on Facebook, that follow along and contribute on our, on our website, that wear the brand um, in the merchandising, that listen to the podcast, that provide feedback to help us do a better job and to make this community better. This this. Louisiana Bowhunter is you. It is the outdoorsman, the archery enthusiast in Louisiana. That's what it's about, and that's what it is. And 2020 has been a difficult year for our country and for our state and for many people. But Louisiana Bowhunter and its community has continued to be there and continue to be strong. And that is because of each and every one of you that are listening to this podcast on Christmas Day or during the holiday season. And posting online and wearing our merchandise and all of those things. So from the bottom of our hearts and very sincerely, we say thank you from Louisiana Bowhunter. And we wish you and yours a very Merry Christmas and a happy and prosperous New Year. From the Palmetto Swamps to the Piney Woods to the Oak Flats. You're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. Come on. The Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast, presented by Relentless Boats, custom aluminum fabrication out of Thibodeau, the kind of design features, and the type of boat you would expect to come from right there on the bayou. So check them out, Relentless Boats, LA.com, live Relentless Boat, Relentless, Relentless Boats, LA.com. Kyler, what's happening? Not much, man, just uh, wearing, wearing the soles of my boots out, trying to find a place for that I want to sit for the next week on public land. Mm-hmm. So, for the rut. What about you? Well, um, 
I did kill a deer. I'm sure most people probably saw that posted on Facebook earlier this week. No, congrats, man. And I'm not I'm not going to beleaguer everyone with a extremely long drawn out story about that. I'll just tell you this: we one of the common topics in bow hunting and as well as Louisiana bow hunter um, and all of these different uh, podcasts and and communities and stuff is people talk a lot about how people hunt right saddles mobile set stands ground blinds right all that so when you listen to us you kind of know that kyler is the public land mobile uh set kind of guy i am the more private land set my stands hunt them on the right days kind of guy so this deer that i killed monday was the first time that I have ever done the mobile sticks and lock-on setup. Now, I grew up uh, hunting out of a climbing stand a lot on public and private. And so walking into an area and climbing up in a tree and hunting is not new to me. But I've not done it with sticks and a a lock-on. So I was hunting with Levi. So, uh, yeah. And and you and you you know because you've hunted with Levi as well. He likes to hunt mobily, and it is private property. But he likes to hunt mobile. They, so, we we get we got to cover this later because they hunt that property like it, it's. It, it, I have so much respect for how, how for the for the restraint they have on how they treat yeah. that property. It's incredible. Yeah. So, so so yeah, that's that's a maybe we'll have Levi on to talk about that because it is really interesting. But so he told me, hey man, come hunt with me a day or two and. And I asked him, you know, what do you want me to bring? He's like, well, do you have a uh, a lock on instead of sticks? And I'm like, well, I do, but I have a lock on and a set of sticks because I need the flexibility for all of my my filming jobs. I need a kind of a mobile set where I can climb up in your stand and then set myself up above you or beside you to film you. I don't have a mobile stick and lock on set so that I can walk in with all of my bow and all that and climb up in a tree and hunt a spot. And um, so, obviously, I have the gear to do it. I'm just not set up that way. So I was like, well, what about a climbing stand, you know? And he was like, well, yeah, I'd really rather you have the lock on, you know, just because of some of the places we hunt and whatnot. And so, so I brought both. And so the first day, he was like, hey, I got a couple spots that I that I think would be good for you to hunt that there's some trees that you can definitely use a climber. So we're good. So uh, on Monday, he was like, man, with the wind what it was doing that that morning he was like you really need to hunt really need to take that lock on if you can do it i'm like well let's just go early and give myself plenty of time because something i'm not used to doing and to to make a, a longer story short it was a comedy of errors and circumstance of just tomfoolery in the dark of me I can't wait to hear about it yeah yeah so i'm not going to go into complete full utter detail but basically Levi walks me into an area. He shows me, hey, you know, somewhere within about 20 yards of right here, just find a tree that you can get in. There's several trails that cross through here. This is where I think you need to be. Later, I'll talk to you later. Text me. Let me know what you're doing. And he leaves. Yeah. In the dark. It's like an hour before daylight. So I find a tree. I have no idea what anything even looks like around me because it is pitch black dark. It's it's really yeah, it's really odd seeing a place for the first time from twenty feet in a tree. Yeah, and 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 then and then when you climb down, it looks nothing 
on the ground like it does from the air. Yeah. You so, know? so the biggest issue that I had, obviously, was just the whole system of getting it done. And so, long story short, I fumbled around, dropped stuff, had to climb down, climb up, climb down, climb up, climb down. I finally get in the tree, and I am set in the tree. I have my backpack. I'm, I'm, I'm strapped in. I get up in there. I get my, my tether set, and, and, and I'm sitting there, and I've got my backpack on the seat of the stand, and it's breaking daylight. So it's taken me that long <laughs> to, get to, get to, to get to this point. And I'm like, shit, and I am just exhausted. And then just, you know, between the clanking, the noise, and the cussing out loud, I'm convinced that I'm not going to see a deer for at least a couple of hours. And I'm just like, okay, well, let me just settle in. And it's a beautiful morning, so maybe mid-morning some deer will move through here that weren't here and heard me do all this, you know. Um, <laughs> and so I'm something dawned on me. You just I thought to myself, you need to go ahead and pull your bow up because it is getting daylight. And, you know, as I'm sitting here, you know, putting my backpack up and putting my camera on the tree because, I, you know, I film everything and my camera arm and all that and just kind of getting set. I'm like, a deer's liable to walk up here on me and my bow's going to be on the ground. And so that's the only thing that saved me. I pulled my bow up, and I did that first. I pulled my bow up, put my my arrow on, my release on the string, and I hung my bow in the tree. And I got my camera set up, and I was was in the middle of getting myself set. I kind of sat down, took a deep breath, took a drink of water, and I had pulled my jacket out. I had the ptarmigan scree jacket that we talk about. I was pulling it out of the little stuff sack, you know, and I literally yep. pulled it out of the stuff sack, and I was holding it by the shoulders, like shaking it to kind of shake it out to, to put it on. And and I heard something, and I looked, and this deer is like 40 yards walking straight to me. <laughs> I'm like, crap. <laughs> so I had to actually drop the uh, jacket on the foot of the stand, and I stood on it so it didn't fall. Just to, I, I actually had the wherewithal to think. Don't set this jacket down, and then it falls and falls down right in front of the deer while I'm trying to get a shot at him, you know. So I, I put it under my feet and stood on it. I grabbed my bow. I flipped the camera on. The deer walked to like three, four steps in front of me, turned to his left, walked to about 10 or 15 yards with just the perfect amount of quarter and away. I looked down at the camera, and I had him in frame. And it just so happened that when I flipped the camera on, the zoom was in the right place. The focus was right. Everything was good. I had him. I shot him. Perfect shot. He, the, the, the arrow buried, buried all the way up to the glow and knock. And he runs off. And as he's running off, I grab the camera arm, uh, the, the remote control arm, to start following him running. And I realized that the camera remote control is not plugged into the camera. So I got nothing because I hit the record button on the remote control. Oh, the control no, wasn't plugged man. in. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I didn't, you didn't tell me you were filming it. I guess that's why. Yeah, so um, I didn't have any film of funny. it. That's <laughs> funny. But uh, it, was, it was a nice four-year-old eight-point, good management kind of deer. You know, big body, heavy horn, but, you know, not not a huge trophy. But, uh, man, any, any bow with a buck is, is a trophy. I the, guess cool, so. the cool thing, the cool thing about hunting over there with Levi is, is he's like, um, uh, he's like, hey, I'm gonna put you in this strip of woods. Um, nobody's hunted it this year. I've been running a cell camera in that area for the for the season. 
he goes, you'll probably see one of these three deer and most likely this one. And then all of a sudden, like a deer walks out and it's, it's like, he's a prophet, you know, it's like the exact deer that he prepared you to see walks out. That's why I was joking with him over that text. I posted a few weeks ago. I was like, all right, Levi, I'm ready. Release the deer. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like you you can, you can let them out of their cage now, like push the button. And, um, but in reality, those deer are, um, they, they are, they don't even know, but they live this charmed life of like zero pressure until he puts somebody like you or me, or they, or he decides to hunt that area. It's so cool because they've had that property for a long time and they only bow hunt it. There's no box stands on the place at all. I, I don't think I, I, I didn't see any. And, um, and, and they have a, a lot of lock-ons, but the more like, um, I don't know where his lock-ons are because everywhere that we hunted, there wasn't anything at all. Mm-hmm. There was no, there's nothing. We we weren't near food. I don't know where you're hunting, but he he told me he told me he thought you would have seen this deer that I saw. So I think I know roughly where you were, but yeah. it's like untouched back there. It's wild. Yeah. He he um, he actually thinks the deer I killed may have been one of the deer that you saw because I was in a in an area that you hunted, and yeah. the deer came from the area that you were hunting uh so so maybe he, he he had told me he had shown me this big a point that was kind of a little it wasn't perfectly symmetrical it, it the rack came out a little about two inches further out on the left than it did on the right so it was it had some character that you could tell from a distance but um that deer came to within 25 yards of me but he came at like my five o'clock on my weak side and um the the way that the deer was he was following a doe and the way that deer was coming behind me it looked like he was going to pass straight behind me following this doe and i could shoot the i would be able to shoot the deer off my left once he passed from behind me and he they got behind me and the doe took a 90 degree turn to the left and they went back in this little slough area and then um, saw a few more does and another buck that was back there with him. It might have been the one that, that you killed. I, I didn't get a good look at that one. But um, but that's that's awesome, man. I'm, yeah. I'm pumped for you. That's really cool. So, so. yeah, I mean, it's good. Uh, I've been in a pretty bad slump since, since I left to go to the Midwest. I'm not even going to say since I came home from the Midwest. Um, mm-hmm. It's, it's been, been a rough season in terms of, I've had some some pretty days. I've enjoyed being in the woods, but I, I just haven't laid eyes on the deer that that I want. And um, yeah, you know, for observation or for for killing something, it's, it's been kind of rough. So it was, it was a nice break to go hunt somewhere where the deer were actually moving around and not hiding from me. So yeah, um, so we're gonna um on this podcast just uh, kind of a precursor to what we're we're doing here today is we got a returning guest. Mr. Glenn Peterson is going to join us here and talk a little bit and share some stories about how his season's going. And, and he actually shot me a text message uh, a week or so ago, and he was kind of frustrated. And he was like, man, we need to do a podcast and talk about the frustrations of being a bow hunter during rifle season. Because I've had three or four shooter bucks that I would have killed, no doubt, with a rifle that I just can't get into bow range. And... um since then he's actually he's actually been able to kill one of those deer but uh we thought that would be a kind of a good holiday topic middle of the season and i'm sure that all of you guys that are listening to the podcast that are sticking to that sticking to that bow and arrow have experienced 
some of that same thing. Before I bring Glenn on, just a reminder about Scree Gear. That's S-K-R-E, Scree Gear. Performance-based layering system apparel. And uh, the closeout sale for the Mountain Stealth pattern that they are discontinuing is con- is is still going on. And it's actually now all the way down to 50% off. Now, supplies are limited, obviously, because they're selling off all their inventory. But you might be able to pick up a few things if you've been wanting to get into that style of hunting gear or you already wear mountain stealth and you want to get a few more pieces before it's gone forever check them out at screegear.com and i personally am very excited to to kind of tease the idea that there's some really cool and exciting things coming from scree in january and that will be you'll be seeing that sooner than later so check them out follow them on uh instagram social media and purchase direct to consumer at screegear.com so mr peterson are you with us i am here so tell us um let's just let's let's just bury the lead go ahead and tell us um (laughs) how many deer should you have killed with a rifle that you could not get into bow range man look uh first of all merry christmas to everybody uh look it's been a bow hunter's nightmare year for me my, mine, much like yours, my whole, you know, regular bow season was just awful. Uh, I shot, I killed two days all through the whole archer season here. Went to the Midwest. I didn't see anything that, you know, even, I never even pulled my bow off the, off the hook, you know, to, <laughs> to put it in my hand while I was sitting in a tree. Uh, just no luck whatsoever. Uh I, uh, my son got a nice deer in the Midwest, you know, while we're hunting, but I, I didn't, but it just, uh, so that made the trip, but if it wouldn't have been for that, <laughs> I would have stomped all the way home. So, uh, anyway, uh, throughout the regular hunting season, just, you know, nothing, just, uh, I saw a lot, several, you know, Pope and Young type bucks, but just could not, for different reasons, could not get one in bow range for nothing. And, uh. Uh, just, you know, deer winning, you name it, just bad luck, bad luck, bad luck. And then, uh, then gun season comes along, and same thing, opening day of gun season, I see, a, you know, a, a, a warrior, you know, and could have shot him with a with a, a pellet gun. <laughs> <laughs> you know, with, but with archery equipment, just couldn't make it happen. Uh, I did finally get one in range right here by the house, uh, well, someone in range. He was in range, coming down the edge of a big ryegrass field, coming right down. I mean, just like he was cooking trees and checking scrapes, and there were some does that come out on the other side of the pasture from him. And once he got on top of the hill where he could see them, he started cutting across, and there was a puddle of water. It had been raining a lot out in the ryegrass. And I said, all right, that, you know, I ranged it. It was 40 yards exactly. I said, you know, if he stays on this side of it, he'll be in, 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 in good range. And, uh, he got almost to the water, and a dang big old senior doe comes in from behind me and winds me and goes to stomping and blowing. Well, the whole pasture, you know, erupts. The doe's taking off. He doesn't know what's going on, so he breaks hey, wait, and, run, wait, and runs out a little bit further than I really like to shoot one. Glenn, did you, say, like, did you say that the doe winded you or winded the deer? No, winded me. When did me? When did you? Okay. okay. Yes. I'm sorry. When my wind was blowing that direction, right toward her. And I even had in my mind, I'm like, the only thing that could foul this up if, is a deer come in behind me and wind me right now. 
I said, you know, and I'm just thinking, you know, scenarios going through your through your brain while you know trying to get your uh, shot sequence and all that ready, and that happened. My worst nightmare happened. I'm like, are you kidding me? How bad could my luck be? Well, being as frustrated as I was, I did something that I preach to people all the time: don't take shots that you're not completely comfortable with. You know, they just don't do it. Because, I mean, you can get lucky every once in a while and have a good outcome, but nine times out of ten, you fail. Well, I failed. The deer ran out there a little further than I like to shoot, and I aimed, I purposely aimed a little bit low because I'm thinking, all right, he's, he's boogered, he's spooked. 99% of the deer in the south are going to react to your bow and go down, you know, and when the air gets there, it should be money. Well, he didn't react. My bow I'm shooting is very quiet, and he never heard the arrow, apparently, and he, he didn't go down, and I, I cut hair off his belly. You know, perfect left and right. Mm-hmm. He went down just three inches out of the heart shot. But I didn't, and he bounded right on out of my life. <laughs> so uh, just, uh, just having bad luck. Just couldn't make anything happen. Well, gun season rolls around. Same thing. I, I have seen four. Pope and Young are better bucks since gun season's opened and and could not get a single one of them bow range. None of them. Yeah, yeah I think I think maybe I'm I'm jumping way ahead in terms of, of, of conversation about it, but it the hard thing about it is all the variables play against you when you get to this point in the season. A, I don't want to say number one because it's not the number one thing, but the first thing to mention is the woods change. There, you could, you know, the the there's a lot. It's a lot more open. Um, you can see further, you know. So therefore, you're more likely to have shots that are out of your comfort range, as opposed to when the woods are greener and things are tighter, and you're set up in an in an area where you're likely to not really have much of an encounter unless it's in bow range. And then the other thing is. It really has nothing to do with the rifle hunting that's going on around you. It has to do with the fact that the deer act differently when they start looking for does and obviously when they start following and chasing does. You know, when you make those early season hunts, you're hunting, uh, most likely, you're hunting a, a deer that's either coming to an area for feeding purposes or bedding purposes or they're traveling to or from those areas. And so you're actually hunting where you expect them to be. And when rifle season comes as a bow hunter, you're hunting an area and you're hoping that on that day, when the deer decides to cruise through there and check for does, or if he's following a doe, that they walk within bow range. And it's just a totally different dynamic. Yeah, they, they're, you know, when they when they start getting behind those does and all that, they're a different animal. I had one uh, about a week ago. I was sitting, I was in a climber, actually. I don't have any climber, climber very often. For the main trails I was, hunt, I was set up on, or my lock-on was, the wind wasn't exactly right. When I had some good cell uh, cam pictures of some deer there, and uh, I'm like, I need to hunt here. It's hot right now. Um, so I brought a climber in there and got downwind of the, of the trails. Well, I had three eight points come in on one doe. She must have been a hoochie mama because... Three two and a half year old eight points were just giving her fits, and they went round and round my tree. It just went, you know, all three of them stopped in different times. But you know, shoot me here, <laughs> like, 
recorded whatever you wanted. I had the shot, but I just they just I videoed it with my phone. Then I was, you know, what I was after, and finally, right about prime time that evening, I look up the road, along the road, and doe walks out, and, I'm, and she looks behind her, and I'm like, she's got a bug behind her. I get my binoculars up, and sure enough, the deer I had on camera that I was really in there after is a big mature eight point. Uh, steps out of the road, and he he must have been to traffic school because he looked left. Back right and then back left again and then crossed the road. He went right in behind me and he he hunkered down with her in a thicket and chased all evening long. I mean, just grunting, chasing, you name it, snort reason. Those other bucks got in there with the chase and it was uh it was a great evening. I mean, great you know I guess you'd call it an encounter as the TV hunters say, but uh it was uh just no shot you know. And finally, when it got pitch dark, here they come. You know, they was going to a library field. They, they all settled down, and they started going to the field. They weren't running on them, but it was so dark. I was, you know, it's too dark. Couldn't see a pen or whatever. But, uh, but the good news about that, it was a blessing that I didn't kill him because my seven-year-old killed him yesterday evening. Yeah, that and, nice. Uh, right on the same road that he crossed. He crossed about 100 yards further down, but this time... <laughs> I had a ancient seven-year-old with a millimeter old eight with a scope on it, and he didn't get across the road this time. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, you know, my son's best buck. This was his first year to hunt, and uh, he. Now, my season has been awful until this week. It's been just you name it that could go wrong has gone wrong. I'm normally, you know, not trying to brag whatsoever, but I'm normally about limited out by now. Well, this year is not the case. But my son, my seven-year-old, this is his first year to hunt. Uh, that was his third buck. So since gun nice. season so we've been having a blast, and it's uh, man, I've had so much fun with that kid, and it's just been uh, barrels of fun. But the questions he asked, you know, it just brings back memories of when I was a kid, and and then my older son, you know, being raised the same way. Of course, he's a bow hunter like us now, but uh, man, we've had we've had so you know so much fun, but uh. He made a comment last night on the way home. He's like, Daddy, I can't wait. You know, I got him, he's got a compound bow, and he shoots it and all that. Of course, he can't pull the poundage to shoot a buck yet or shoot a deer yet. But, uh, he's like, I can't wait till my bow's strong enough to kill a deer. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> he's, uh, he's pumped up. But uh, So anyway, my season's turned around in the last week or so. Uh, I shot a uh, kill a nine-point Monday evening, same thing, very very exciting hunt, you know, the, the chasing, the, the grunting, the, the uh, stuff you don't get to see here in the south that much. Just an exciting evening. It was a buck that I, the buck I shot, I actually let go twice during archery season. But, you know, as I tell people, it was just time to kill one. I, I had <laughs> enough of letting them go and just being a watcher. It was fun to be a killer. So, yeah, yeah um, you had to, had to get the stink off. Yeah. yeah, man, I, and look, I made a great shot on him, and uh, he didn't go very far. Matter of fact, he ran toward the road and died, you know, so I'm like, man. Wow. So my season has turned around, but, uh, you know, getting back to the, the frustrating part, uh, all my, you know, I sent them, some of these deer I've seen, I videoed with my phone, send to my buddies, and they're like, man, why don't you bring a gun, you know, how do you let a magnum like that get by you, you know, I'm like, it don't bother you, I said, yeah, it does bother me. It really does. We talked about this on a prior podcast. It bothers me, but it it doesn't break my heart. It's not the end of the world. That's the reason why I'm bow hunting. It's for that challenge. You know, I want yeah. I want that challenge. It just 
It doesn't do it for me anymore to shoot one with a gun. Uh, I just like the challenge of trying to shoot one with a bow because I feel like if you can get it done this time of year with all the gun owners in the woods and all that, uh, foliage being down, trying to hide, you know, and deer, you know, not being on a set pattern, you've really accomplished something. You know, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. So, uh, that, well, and that's what, that's what drives me. Glenn, if I remember correctly, the first podcast we did with you, I, I'm, I'm having trouble. I, I definitely don't remember the number, but I can't remember if it was season one or season two, but that title is Bow Hunting Rifle Land. So it was, this right. is almost like a sequel to that. Um, right. Didn't you tell me that you haven't shot a deer with a gun in over 20 years? Uh Maybe even close to thirty now. Yep. I, I honestly. Wow, okay. Yeah. I knew it was. I knew it was over twenty. Yep. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, um, <clears throat> what what I wanted to ask you was, um, not to sound like a psychiatrist here, but look, how does it how does it make you feel when when you have a deer that you could kill in range, but they won't with with a rifle. Um, like they're 80, 100, 150 yards, or they're, you know, way, way out of bow range. Do you, like, do you feel, man, I wish I should have, I should have hunted that side of the field, or I should have been on that ridge, or, or do you have these thoughts that come through your head, like, if I had my gun, that would have been an easy kill. Like, do you feel disadvantaged at any point in time, or do you feel like you need to change your strategy up whenever well, that happens? Well, good question, because I get asked that all the time. You know, like I said earlier, a lot of my buddies, man, why don't you just get a gun, you know? And it's, I'm like, that is what drives me. When I see that, that deer, that buck, you know, out of bow range, like I said, you know, on another ridge or, or follow another trail or come out in the pasture I'm hunting in a different spot that I'm set up on, that my brain, you know, okay, okay, what can I do tomorrow to sit up on that? Yeah, deer, you know, to move the deer that I missed and I told you about earlier. I saw him the evening before. I have a lock on in the corner of that field. He come out on the opposite side. They'll never come out on that side, holy ever. But he came out on that side, and he, he is a he is a really really good deer for this area. He came out, and you know, of course, he was two hundred yards from where I was at. Well, what about the next evening, you know, I brought me up a, a mobile set, you know, in there on the lock-on and, and got in there early and set up on him. And sure enough, he came out on that side again, but he would, he came out about, you know, 40 yards further up the fence than he did the day before. If he had used the same, if he had come out in the field the same that way he did the day before, he would have been, you know, in plenty of bow range. But the way it worked yeah. out, it just, but that's the type scenarios that drive me to keep toting my bow in the woods. That's that's what I like. You know, I mean, I know, yeah. it's, look, I know it's different than most people in the South. You know, as soon as gun season gets over, they're breaking the, 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 the firearm out. And that's fine. That's what you want to do. For me, it just drives me even more to to be a better hunter, you know, to be, uh, you know, pay attention to my wind a little more. Uh, you know, all of those things that, that get you in bow range of, of a buck, that's what, drives me you know um well I don't know. I, 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 yeah and i go ahead i'm sorry well i'm just saying that's I, that's my cup of tea you know everybody's different and uh i wish there were more people like me you know i wish like you know uh my family's you know private farm we have 
I am the only, well, I say that my son, my older son and I are the only bow hunters on it this time of year. My dad, my mom, the rest of my family all gun hunt, you know, and that's great. You know, and I wish them nothing but the best, I, you, know, you know, especially my parents. I want them to, to you know, have all the success they can. Uh, that's not, it doesn't bother, that part doesn't bother me. You know, seeing a deer out of bow range, yeah, I'm not saying it doesn't bother me. It does bother me to see one. It's frustrating, but I, I, I'm to the point of my career where I, you know, okay, tomorrow I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to get a rifle. I'm coming back and killing that deer. Uh, that doesn't cross my mind at all. I'm just, yeah. I'm, I'm a bow hunter, you know, and that, maybe, well, that, and maybe that, that sounds egotistical, but that's just what I like to do. No, it's, it's not egotistical at all. That that's it's kind of what I what I want to talk about. Um, that I agree with you a hundred percent. And the reason why I asked you that question the way that I did was because there's there there's only two ways to react to that situation. You can either feel like you're at a disadvantage, or you could feel like you need to put a little. Like, well, the other thing, if you if you want to be an optimist. You feel like you have a small another piece of the puzzle, and you can get a little closer closer to where that deer is going to be, possibly in the morning or in the evening tomorrow, and um, you can make a move on him with your bow still. Um, right. So, I um, I have recently been talking to more hunters that. Um, all of their emphasis is on the final result. And yeah. what I mean by that is their goal is to kill a deer. Like that's that's the end goal. They don't care how they do it. They don't care with yeah, what they, don't, they do. They don't it. care whatsoever about the journey whatsoever. They and 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 to clarify that you know, that's, that's not, I'm not saying there's anything bad about that. And especially, especially this time of year when you've got time constraints or you've got limited time off work, holidays, family obligations, shopping, watching your kids, family coming to town, blah, blah, blah. You traveling. There's a lot of, there's a lot of time constraints to the woods. And, um, I, what I sometimes feel, and this is my, personal opinion is I feel like if I were able to let somebody that's never killed an animal with a bow kind of kind of just get a little taste of it they they would never stop like they would yeah. it's a totally different sensation and sensation and not sensation um uh, experience than than um sitting over a food plot or feeder even in in hunting out of a box stand and there's no need for camouflage or you, you know you can play you have your kids playing your ipad in the background or something like that sure. and um but what you know what i kind of think not to sound like really about this but like every deer that we kill is like a chapter in our bow hunting book and when i say a chapter i mean it's an interesting story and it has a lot of details and it has a lot of efforts and it has a lot of consideration put into where we sat why we did what the wind was like everything is a justifiable deliberate move that eventually hopefully adds up to us killing a deer 
And, um, like, for example, you and that that buck that you killed that you passed twice in both season and then you killed um, recently, you know, you have three encounters. That's an interesting chapter. Let's say, you know, if we were to write that story out, it might be five pages long, okay, if, sure. if you were writing that 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 story of that buck that encounter and obviously at the end of the story you killed your deer whereas Locke's buck that he killed with levi that would be like two paragraphs you know he he didn't have a history with it it was his first attempt he claimed his way up a tree five he, times he would have more he would have more content in his story about fumbling up and down the tree absolutely yeah, would sure. killing the deer absolutely <laughs> and, and so but but that still counts as a chapter sure but um Anyway, I, I think it's really interesting because I get, the point that I'm getting at is that for bow hunters, it really isn't – like our emphasis is not on the kill. That is the thing we're going after. But when, when, a, when, when somebody tells me that they killed a big deer, one of my first questions, whether I ask it or not, is – you know, tell me about it or how did you kill it? Because like we said on the absolute very first podcast ever, um, like the, episode one, we said when you're gun hunting and you see a deer, your hunt is over. When you're bow hunting and you see a deer, your hunt's just beginning. And right. um, and so – and this is like just to clarify again because there's some, some people out there that think i'm a pessimist or whatever this isn't naysaying bow, uh, gun hunting this is pro bow hunting and why we're different why we are such a proud loyal group of sportsmen that do a thing a certain way harder than any other way you could do it it's because it is about the accomplishment it is about the journey and the the long list of failures and the short list of successes and um it is not about an Instagram photo of a deer. That is not what it is. It's not, you know, hey, I'm home for college from for for Christmas break from college, and I'm going to sit over a food plot that I had no involvement in in planning, in a box yep. stand that I didn't hunt, and I'm borrowing a gun because I'm. The and guest. my uncle Frank's been filling up food with everybody since all this. Yeah, I'm gonna go shoot it. Yeah, that's that's we like <laughs> for, for for a bow hunter, all bow hunter, true bow hunters. Doesn't matter if it's a compound or trap bow. True bow hunters are going to have a very interesting story to tell you about every deer that they killed every single right. one and i can um, tell you every deer that i got either mounted i haven't mounted one in several years i most did a skull mount them but believe it or not every really you know nice buck i've ever killed with a bow with the exceptions of some that i killed way a long time ago i keep the arrow and yeah you know, I put the arrow on the rack with with the broadhead. I killed the deer on, and I, as we talked before, I'm a I'm a broadhead uh, freak, I guess you'd say. There's <laughs> a lot of different kind of broadheads on these arrows. Yeah. And if I took all those arrows down and uh, you know replenish them or whatever, and, and probably have a thousand dollars worth of arrows, but uh, as expensive as arrows are nowadays. But um, but I can. What my point is, I can tell you everything about that deer. What you know, how I killed him, where I killed him. Which, what, what wind direction it was, you know, yeah, I don't the temperature, the, the, the yeah, the time, like a lot yeah, of guys do. yeah. But I can tell you every detail about it. 
you know, where I killed him, uh, what time of year, you know, um, and that arrow reminds me of that. I can even tell you probably what bow I was using at the time, you know. Yeah. Thinking back on it, but and that's why, you know, I do that because it's a reminder when I look at that either mounted buck or skull mount, and and no matter the size of the rack, uh, I can tell you every detail about it, you know. And uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, you know. I don't know. I guess uh, maybe that's strange to some people, but well, that's, just, I, no, that's not part of the thing that drives me. I think that, you know, some of the elements that we're talking about, they can apply to gun hunters. But I think the point of uh, uh, the point to make uh, the dif- differentiation, I guess is the word to use, is for, a, you know, a lot of the things that we're talking about for someone that's gun hunting, I mean, yeah, um, they acquire the memory. They acquire the story of that hunt. And some uh, more than others, depending on how they hunt. But I think the big difference with the bow hunter is, psychologically speaking, and even speaking about the journey, we have to be more um, hyper-focused to all of these things that we end up carrying with us and that we end up using to build that story. Because if we're not hypersensitive to all these things, like the wind, the weather, the location, the the strategy that was used, if we're not hypersensitive to them, then it's really hard to be successful. Whereas yeah. with a gun, you do have those stories. I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, obviously you sat there, you saw the deer, you shot the deer, you recovered the deer. You know, you probably remember where I was, who who I was hunting with, and, and all that kind of thing. But it's... It, 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 you, you don't have that focused approach on all of those things because you can get away with so much more by gun hunting. I mean, I, I, I think that I'm probably not a lot different than a lot of people, and, and maybe not even you, Glenn, in that you have a lot of family that hunts with you that are, that are gun hunters. My dad, as an example, my dad has bow hunted ever since, you know, I was old enough to hunt with him, and before he was a bow hunter, but... My dad likes to gun hunt. He doesn't like to gun hunt because he wants to just kill deer in, in an easier way. He likes to gun hunt because he likes guns. He yeah. likes his guns. He shoots his guns all year. He cleans his guns meticulously. He stores them. And they are, to him, what tinkering with archery equipment is to us. And so he cherishes the opportunity to take those guns out in the woods and actually use them for their given purpose. And that's why he gun hunts. So I I think it it is fair for us to say, you know, to acknowledge that. But it it, it still stands that as a bow hunter, one of the cool things about being a bow hunter is all of these things that we're talking about that build that story of every hunt, they are brought way further out in front because we have to be we have to challenge ourselves so much, and we have to take into account so many things, and we have to do so many things differently sometimes multiple times over in order to get in that position. And I think, you know, obviously with the the, the gun hunt being a more simple thing and a, a much more flexible thing, a lot of those things can end up kind of being faded in the background where just the shock value of the kill becomes so much more the focus. Because I don't know about for you guys, but like using my story that that was just given um, that happened this week, 
I mean, like honestly, if we're if we're having a conversation and I start thinking of what to tell you, if if you guys are sitting here at the camp with me and we start talking about my hunt on Monday, like way down the list of things that I want to tell you about is the shot and the deer and the kill because all the crap that went into me shooting that deer takes precedent in my mind. Sure. You know, the decisions that Levi and I made for me to be in that spot, what it took for me to get in that spot, what it took for me to execute the shot, what it took yeah. for us to get that deer out of that thicket, you know, with a stand on our back and a bow in our hand and, and all those things, all those things are so much more in the forefront of my story than the actual deer or the shot on the deer. You know, I, yeah. I think that, that to me, that's, that's, that's what it looks like to me when I, when I, when I have this conversation and when we talk about, you know, what's the difference between, let me, let me ask, let me ask y'all this. Do y'all, do y'all think, do y'all think, um, that archery as, um, I'll, I'll say it, uh, archery as a sport is being, um, continued on in the way that you're you're happy with or do you feel as if it's being um almost uh devalued slightly because of people that don't like the traditional methods or styles of hunting or um even styles of weather available during archery season i personally feel like archery's in a good place because and I, I'm going to give an example, and I think Glenn might agree with me because he and I are very similar in this regard. Um, and I know this because Glenn and I hunt together and we talk all the time, so I'm not just guessing. Uh, um, <laughs> uh, when you look at when you look at the hunting community, the the you know Louisiana bow hunter community and all the other communities that are far more able to communicate nowadays because of social media and the internet and the wide widely available uh, methods of taking in media and, and stuff like that archery and that the excitement of of mobile hunting and bow hunting midwestern states with archery equipment during the rut and all those things are piquing the interest of a lot of people and you see these very large and loyal growing groups of saddle hunters and mobile hunters and public land hunters and deer managers that are trying to shoot bigger and older deer. All these things are very popular in the hunting community. What I'm going to compare that against, and this is where Glenn and I will meet in the middle a little bit, um, I'm going to compare it to turkey hunting. When you see what's happening in the turkey hunting community, it's the exact opposite. In the turkey hunting yeah, community, it's all about how many turkeys can I kill and post on social media. Yep. And if I have to sit on the edge of a field with corn scattered out there and wait for a turkey to come strutting by, as long as I can kill him, or if I have to crawl up on him and shoot him without even trying to call him in, I just know he's in a position that I can just crawl up there and shoot him, and now I've got a bird to throw over my shoulder and get a cool sunrise picture with. It's all about kill as many as you can, and the art of actually yep. going in the woods and sitting down against a tree and calling a bird into gun range is being lost in the sport of right. turkey hunting. And turkey That's hunting a great suffering. point. Turkey hunting suffering because of it, because it's all about numbers. It's all about I've got a spring season 
that spans a couple of states so it goes maybe two and a half months and i'm going to try to just kill as many turkeys as i can i don't care if he's the boss gobbler all i care does he have a full fan a long beard and can he gobble and how quickly can i put a shotgun bead on his head and kill him Mm -hmm. and how fast can i get it on my social media Mm -hmm. you know the picture so yeah that that's 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 a that's a great analogy because um i I I'm not a turkey hunter. I I do not need any more hobbies, or nor do yeah, don't I need stop. to hunt more. It's no fun. I do. Whatsoever. It's terrible. I do. Yeah, I do not need to extend my hunting season. I would like to stay married. I'd like to see my kids grow up. But um, I I notice as a past duck hunter and. And I, I haven't hunted duck hunted two years since I had to put my lab down at 15. I just don't feel like going without him with him anymore. Going without him anymore, excuse me. Um, but I've definitely noticed just being on the periphery of turkey hunting that it has become a it has become the new duck hunting. It has become this new infatuation for you know, 16 to 25 year olds to look cool, take pictures and, and the tradition and the longstanding, you know, I got to tell you, look, I, I do believe that a deer is a formidable opponent in the woods and a matured buck is a matured buck and uh, a very old doe. Like you said, busted you earlier, Glenn. Um, those are, those are the, the the greatest opponents to have in the woods. And when you finally kill one and you beat one, that's an accomplishment. And I think that's what you're saying about big old turkeys is the same thing. Is there, you know, I, I would imagine in the turkey world, there's probably the equivalent of a spike or a one and a half year old, which is the dumbest animal in the woods, you know. Um, and about the only thing dumber than a spike buck is like an armadillo. And, um, (laughs) and, and so, yeah, when, when, um, when people are posting pictures of killing young Toms or even Jake's, if it's legal in an area, yeah, yeah, I've heard you say this, the, the ecosystem of turkeys cannot support that much pressure, um, to, to, to support a trend if you will. And I think that's what it is. Cause we've already seen that in duck hunting. Um, right. and in between duck hunting surface drives, which I had one and I sold it and I, I love them to death. Um, and satellite imagery, there's not a place that a duck can land on this planet. That's safe. Yeah. yeah. The turkey, turkeys so, have turned into the same. I, I, I totally agree with you. It's a good comparison. You know the the duck hunting community and, the, and what's what's happened to the turkey hunt community. I got you know a big group of buddies of mine that we all you know share information and all that about turkeys <clears throat> during the season, and we're we're all just disgusted at what's happened to our beloved sport and the tradition of it and and all that. You know we're we're all kind of and we get called old school or whatever. You call me whatever. You, I'm, I'm pretty passionate about it. I mean. It's it's pretty sickening actually at the end of the day what's happened to it. Yeah, and, and, and like and like Locke said, what's gonna especially what it's coverage last year and everybody was became a turkey hunter because they weren't working. The states, a lot of states got pounded where they normally, you know, uh, 
or not. And it, it, we're going to suffer for it as a yeah. young community. We're, we're going to suffer for it for the next few years. And until people wise up and uh, it, 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 it's, it's not going to be good. Well, you know, the the positive spin, you know, to take it back to the original, the original, I mean, the positive spin and and, and, and further identifies the contrast between the two. I really do believe that, that archery and deer hunting is in a pretty good place because uh, yeah, you're, you're right. It is, it, you know, you, you have, I mean, just, yeah, so we had this conversation on Strutcast just, just to use one more analogy to, 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 to emphasize this point that we're making, um, on the Strutcast podcast that I do for turkey hunting in the spring, I don't remember who the guest was and I don't even remember exactly what, what all we were talking about, but the analogy was brought up and to me, it's great. It's, it's, it's a great picture of the contrast of hunting communities that we're, that we're looking at here. So if you take your average 500-acre uh, hunting lease in somewhere in Louisiana or southwest Mississippi or, you know, right here in our geographical region, right? So on that 500-acre lease, you probably got anywhere from four to six or seven hunters that are members that are sharing the expense of managing this property and paying the lease and all that sort of thing. So you take these, let's just use a median number of five, five hunters that are hunting that lease, and the summer comes around, and they all start running trail cameras, and they start planting food plots and setting up stands and doing all this kind of stuff, and it's very commonplace, and I'm not saying this is every single lease. I'm just talking about statistical majorities. It's commonplace in the hunting community nowadays that this group of guys will all develop a hit list of bucks, right? You know, yeah. here's our really old trophy mature bucks. Here's some mature bucks that, you know, have superior genetics that we don't want to shoot and let them get even more mature. Here's some bucks that, you know, they're mature enough. They're probably not going to get a lot bigger. Here's some older deer that, that are just what we would call cull or management deer and so we got this hit list of you know however many deer on this lease and everybody's hunting those deer and maybe some mistakes are made or whatnot but at the end of the season you know a median average you kill a couple of those trophy bucks you kill a couple mature bucks and you you know you kill 50 or 60 percent of these deer that you had on camera and everybody's like wow you know, we did pretty good. We killed a couple of really big mature bucks. We killed a couple of great management bucks, and everybody's happy. Now, fast forward to the next spring. There's four goblin turkeys on that 500 acres because the population isn't what it used to be. Three of those four goblin turkeys are two-year-olds that have never bred before. They've never produced any offspring. One of them is an old boss turkey, and there's five members. And at the end of the spring... They've probably killed all four of those goblin turkeys, and not all, and, and maybe one of them killed two of them. Not everybody got the chance to kill a turkey, and everybody feels like the turkey hunting was subpar because yeah. everybody needs to kill a turkey. And it, the way we value the species and the way we hunt in our, within the communities are different. And so not to make this a turkey hunting podcast, I'm just saying the oh, culture around deer, yeah. the culture around deer hunting is just different and people really value herd health um right. in yeah. in a lot of cases herd health management um people really understand and value the difference between age structure on bucks 
and in the bow hunting community specifically, there's a large, large, large number of by percentage of hunters that guys that are like us that are really dedicated archers and like to bow hunt year round. We're definitely more likely to be the kind of guy who's not going to shoot an immature deer because if once we've put in all the effort to do all this and gone through all the frustrations and the heartaches and the headaches of being a bow hunter all year long and all those challenges we're definitely out to kill the the bigger older deer you know because we are out for the challenge so i think the i think the archery community is in a great place yeah yeah i think as a a whole also it's getting better and better on 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 the on on that you know on the on the deer hunting and turkey hunting is a whole different yeah. Podcast, so, say, but, so let, let me uh, ask let me ask you all this let me ask you all this because this this is a, a whole nother topic but it kind of goes hand in hand uh segueing into it y'all are both both of you are 10 times more accomplished out out of state hunters maybe 100 times more accomplished out of state hunters than i am y'all have exponentially more experience hunting all over the country and seeing other management styles, other state regulation styles, other terrains, other herds, other just total breeds of deer in a sense. And um, do you think that Louisiana could ever become a destination deer hunting state? Glenn, you answer this first. Uh, uh, no. And, and the reason why is because... Although I agree with Locke, the the hunting, deer hunting community is getting better and better. More and more people are wanting to manage. More and more people are into, you know, wanting to kill more mature deer. And and all we still have lots of folks down this way. No offense to any of them, to each their own. That they're just out to kill. They could care less, you know, how big, how mature a buck is or whatever. Uh, and not only that, our bag limits are too liberal to ever to ever produce um, high quality, uh, have enough quality deer, I guess you'd say, for a lot of out of you know, you don't see very many out of staters. You don't see very many people coming from Michigan to come to Louisiana to hunt. Now, not unless you go to Missouri or Iowa or something for like Christmas. that. They're everywhere. Yeah, they just don't yeah. come here, and uh, because. Of, uh, I mean, I don't know if we have the agri- agriculture in Louisiana. Now, some places in North Louisiana and all, it's, you know, they, yeah, they, and they and they're, and they're killing magnums up there. It shows, but they have the ag and all that to go along with it. Down here where we live, in this part of the state, I live in East Louisiana. There's no, there's no farming. There's no crops anymore. Very few that you know it used to be, but they're they're all gone. Everybody's planted everything in pine trees, and. Um, uh, I just don't see, you know, so my answer is no. Yeah. I don't think it'll ever happen. So my answer to the question is no also, and it's not that much different from Glenn, but I'll highlight a, a couple of different points. And, and and most of them have relevance in what he said as well. But I think the biggest issue that we have, as well as some of our neighboring areas, um and I explain this to a lot of people in a lot of different types of conversations. The problem with Louisiana from that perspective is there are too many local hunters, regardless of, of what their mission is as a hunter, regardless of how they hunt, whether they're you know uh, killers or whether they're managers or whatever. It doesn't matter. The problem is 
when you come to Louisiana, there's hardly an acre anywhere that somebody doesn't have a vested interest in deer hunting on it already. When you go to Kansas or Missouri or Illinois, the season is shorter. The in, the investment in deer hunting for the local person is not there. When you come to Louisiana, you can deer hunt from October the 1st until February the 15th. It's And you can kill a lot more deer. It's a lifestyle that spans a whole half of a calendar year. When you go somewhere else to another state because of the regulations, because of the style of hunting, because of what the land offers, etc., it's a niche, or niche, however you pronounce that word, Kyler, opportunity to deer hunt in a in a small point in time throughout the year. And when it's over, everything is different. When deer season's over here, we take a short break and we start preparing for the next deer season. And so I just don't think that, I don't think there's ever going to be enough available ground for the state to become a destination because your private lands get a lot of traffic because a lot of people use them a lot of locals use them and your public grounds are slam chock full of people that are hunting them they're not set aside for somebody to offer outfitted hunts and not to say there's not an outfitter or two here and there in louisiana sure there is but it's just a simple economics and demographic thing. There's so many people that want to hunt that live here that are local um, resident license holders that the, the available deer hunting is widely captured by the local demographic. And there's just not room for a tourist type of hunting community that you get in the Midwest where... 60% of the local population doesn't even deer hunt. Doesn't even hunt, yep. And, you know, and... Deer, yeah. Like you said, almost... <clears throat> and looking at my, you know, my uh, ballywhack of people that I hang out with, I should say, almost everybody <laughs> I know deer hunts here, from here. Everybody oh, sure. does. Everybody. They might not be as fanatic about it as I am, but they hunt. Uh, yeah. All the guys that work with me or for me deer hunt every single one of them and 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 a couple of them are, are pretty hardcore mm-hmm. and um and and they don't go out of speed anywhere you know like we do and all that they're not crazy about it as i am but um uh, I, I don't like to see like like so there's not enough room you know for uh-huh. just think about the public land we have here uh um, sure there's not, there's not, I mean, you know how slammed it gets during deer season we have. Just think if we had a lot of out-of-staters coming here, you know, yeah. whereas I, I know for me, when I go to the Midwest, I see more Louisiana and Mississippi flakes than, than I do locals. And that's just yeah, that's a good, that's a good know? point. I, had, I hadn't thought about that. Since, since I don't think of Louisiana as being a destination state, I hadn't, hadn't given much consideration to like increased capacity or I- increased activity on public land um like that that's a good point well now with, with everybody with everybody and you're right i mean everybody literally hunting literally everybody hunts that we know now granted that's also our own network there's also a larger sure. population right. of course that doesn't but 
we have it. I think per capita, Louisiana has to have some of the highest um, percentage of hunters um, in the country. Uh, maybe Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia are similar, but we're all, all for the same reason, right? We have long seasons and we have late ruts and, and blah, 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 very liberal bag limits. But um, I, I think that, I think that it's, it's, uh, it would be interesting to learn how many people, individual people actually um, shoot their limit every year or even half their limit. How many people kill more than one deer in a year? Um, and out of those people that kill more than one deer, how many people kill all six? Because um, I don't think it's very many. And I don't think that – and not only that, even the best hunters are not killing their limit every year. Um, and so with that with that being said, like um, kind of where I was going with the whole out-of-state – I'm sorry, the whole um, destination state uh, question was – you know, how do we make deer hunting better if we're we're not going to be an out-of-state attraction for other people? How do we make deer season more enjoyable or or more of an accomplishment for our locals through some sort of regulation or reduced bag or bag limit or something like that, you know? Making everybody bow hunt only and reduce it down to, (laughs) you know, two bucks and one doe or, or, or two two does and one buck <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm kidding of course yeah. but i just like i said I, I don't that's a good question i don't know i mean i would love to be a part of some kind of organization to better the the, the deer hunting you know i, uh, I personally think and this that i've derived this opinion strictly off of personal experience like i, I sit back and look as you know, I'll be 40 years old next year, and I've been deer hunting actively basically every weekend of deer season somewhere since I was old enough for my dad to drag me out of the house and take me hunting, you know, so 30-plus years. And I I personally think that our wildlife and fisheries and whoever governs our seasons needs to take a look at environmental changes because it, 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 I, look I'm not I'm not trying to go political on the on the uh, uh, on the world changing and global warming and all of these these things that we that we're seeing in Washington DC about about how our earth is changing and, and all those sort of things but there's some legitimacy to the fact that our seasons are changing it's hotter mm-hmm. for longer. It's colder and more wintry in the first of turkey season. The last five or six years, sure. the yep. first part of turkey season is as cold and and deery as the uh, any time during the actual deer season. Our seasons, for whatever reason, over several decades and over a generation, have changed a lot. And and you know, as as one very low hanging fruit example. Um, I have property here in East Feliciana Parish, and I also have property in Mississippi that I am basically in control of and spend a lot of time managing. And over the last couple of years, I've had pictures of spotted fawns in November mm-hmm. on both properties. And that goes to show you that the breeding, that never happened. You never saw a spotted fawn after the middle of bow season, ever. And sometimes it was hard to see them past opening weekend of bow season. 
you know, when I was a teenager growing up learning to bow hunt, you never saw rut happening at the first of turkey season. I have seen deer grunting and chasing does, and I know Glenn has as well. Sure. During that early turkey, that, that early March turkey season in, in southwest Mississippi. Um, yeah, they're still making scrapes and, and, and chasing. And, the same and, thing. You know, and, yeah. and, 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 and Louisiana just changed. I saw it in Louisiana, too, because Louisiana just moved their season back. In the past, going out and scouting and listening for turkeys and even hunting the, when, when, when Louisiana opened earlier in March, I've seen scrapes and rut activity in March, and, I, and I've seen pregnant does in October. I have seen yeah. spotted fawns in November. Those trends keep happening. So to answer your question a little bit more directly, as I've traveled around the world to get there, Kyler, um, I, I think that, you know, a, a kind of a, a taking a look at, at these trends, and I also understand that there's some economy involved in the way that we segregate our seasons, but I would love to see just a little bit more of a simpler plan towards what's archery season and what is firearm season and the dates of those things. And because to me, we're doing the same thing we were doing in 1970. And and that just doesn't make sense. It hasn't changed. And it doesn't make sense. It hasn't changed at all. And, and I think part of that is, um, part of that is, is understanding how, understanding how change happens in the government. Um, and, and part of that comes from, the the way in which government employees departments and entities are like they that they conduct business if you will they are not willing to change until they are explicitly told to or um either or they're not going to get funding anymore um once once you have something in place and it is quote unquote not broken from the perspective of the government, it takes a lot of force to get that train moving again. Just like just like what we talked about with um, with uh, Jonathan Bordelon at um, about just I've been I'm not even exaggerating. I have been emailing him and other members of Wildlife and Fisheries for three years three years i've been trying to get tunica hills to match the area six hunting seasons it is a zone within a hunting area that does not have the same dates as the area it's within and and so he even said on our podcast you know browse surveys and there's not enough food to support the deer yada 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 if that's the case you're telling me that a deer can cross over whatever that highway is that runs to Angola and has enough to eat over there. You know, like (laughs) there's, there's some logical deduction that can come from these stances, but I I know a lot of it has to do with funding. A lot of it has to do with studies and reports. And then you've got three, four, five years until they have findings. And by that point in time, the information's outdated again. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I think a lot of it stems from the fact that, um, you're not going to get changed until there's major pressure applied, either internally or externally. And, um, I, you know, I personally, having seen the benefits of um, even the most basic, minimal 
antler restrictions, restrictions in Mississippi yeah. or other state, even something as sim- as simple as it has to at least have two on one side. Okay, let's let's yeah. start at let's start bare minimum. Like, yeah. Absolute yeah. bare minimum. Yes, like has to have two on one side, three on one side, not four on one side. I'm not I'm not trying to create this this world of six points, as everybody likes to go to the extreme, say that we're going to shoot all the eight points, and there'll be nothing left but a nine-year-old six points running around. But but if you if you protect the one and a half-year-old deer, I don't care if it's doe or a buck, and you let them get to two and a half, and you let them breed, and you let them um, you let them run like a fuller, longer life cycle. That's going to have a positive effect on the, the whole on the whole herd because locked to, to I'm gonna I'm gonna take a stab at a turkey analogy. I hope that's okay. Right. A shooting shooting a one and a half year old spike is no different than shooting a Jake. Am I wrong? You're absolutely right. It's about the same. Yeah. yeah. And and so um, like I said, that's the dumbest animal in the in the world. I've seen rabid raccoons that have more sense than a one and a half year old spike, and. Um, you, you know, if you let that deer go to two and a half and then he gets his wits about him and he starts realizing, hey, I probably shouldn't be out at 415 in this oak flat, you know, um, he'll make it to two and a half and then three and a half and four and a half. And then eventually we will all be shooting larger deer, better deer, deer we're more proud of that we and that's the thing that's funny about uh, deer hunting these days is I, I never understand if these are the same people making these claims, but you have people that want to shoot giant bucks, but don't want you to say anything about shooting a spike, Yeah, which is, yeah, but they don't want to do what it takes to, to grow those. You can't have both those things. You either want to shoot big bucks and hold out for it, or you're just crossing your fingers, hoping to get lucky every time you go in the woods. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, and so for me, I think it's I do while I I agree with both y'all. There's no way in hell we'll ever be a destination state ever. It'll no. never happen. I, but I do think that it is possible to have a better deer hunting experience for us if we put some minor, minor re- regulations in place. Yeah, um, some kind of restrictions. Yeah, yeah and, I agree. And, and 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 let me let me finish that by saying. I am very much a conservative, don't tread on me type. I don't like big government. I don't want more laws. I, I'm not a Karen and all this other shit that you could say. But I do like shooting deer, and more importantly, I like seeing deer. And having some using management practices that have been proven effective in other neighboring states that have very very similar ecosystems and deer populations, it could do, do wonders in Louisiana. And within three to five sure. years, we would be having a totally different generation of deer hunters growing up, ha- seeing 10, 15 deer per hunt yeah. on public right. land, potentially. So, you know, I, I've got an interesting story to, to, to bring into this conversation. And I don't know if either one of you have seen it, but it, it's absolutely um, fascinating. And it outlines how difficult this conversation we're having is as it pertains to the public, the hunting public, regulation, and enforcement of, and all that sort of thing. Okay? So recently, 
like this fall. Uh, I don't know exactly when, but I think I think it was like October or something. In Montana, there's a story. In, in, in Montana, you have what's called block management areas. And so basically what that is is the same thing as the public-private walk-in areas that we've talked about on this podcast and people are aware of. Certain states, if you're a landowner, there's tax benefits and whatever. You can donate your property to public walk-in hunting access. And in Montana, they call that block management. So there's a block management area for elk hunting in Montana. And opening weekend or opening day, potentially, right outside of a, uh, this is a, it, this was an area that was right outside of, I think it was right outside of Bozeman, but if it wasn't Bozeman, it was a populated metro area in Montana. There's a block management area and there's a very large herd of elk on that area. So obviously this is a totally different dynamic than any kind of deer hunting. But, again, what I'm talking about is the challenges that we face in the hunting public, hunting community, and regulations and enforcement and all that. So what happens is you end up having a whole bunch of people from this area that are seeing these elk, and they're waiting on opening day. And on opening morning at daylight, they had a flock shooting of elk on this block management. And I think something like 50 elk were killed and Many, many, many more were wounded and got away, and the stories are horrific. There were people surrounding this block management area, all of them legal hunters, all of them 100% within their right to be there. None of it was coordinated. They just all showed up because so many people were see these. You know, obviously this is open country. This is a spot and stalk style hunt. All of these people are going out, getting ready for opening day. They all go within their legal rights to a legal area, and everybody's there at the same time. And they end up in this almost what seemed to be, you know, it's the kind of situation that you that that that's made for a movie script. It's not a coordinated effort. But who's right and who's wrong? Obviously, what ended up happening was extremely wrong. The fallout yeah. from it has been there were a lot of citations written because inevitably when there's that many people shooting, it was dangerous. There was a ethical issue that came into play for everybody involved. The block management landowner is so angry about it that he's considering now pulling his land out of public access. And it's a big, huge problem. But the issue is... What, how do you figure this out? Because nobody there intently was doing anything wrong. But it's a loophole in the system. So how do you regulate? And how do you, you know, I mean, do you say, well, okay, well, when you showed up and you saw there were 50 people lining this area, you should have left. But you had every right to be there just like them. Maybe you spent the last two weeks out there spotting and scouting and knowing that hey this is where i'm going to be i'm going to get on a big herd of elk and i'm going to be able to to fill my tag right yeah but is isn't this how we ran out of toilet paper at the beginning of covid uh, it's the same thing <laughs> but my point my point is like I, I i mean i've listened it's been i've heard a couple of different hunting podcasts talking about this story because it's a big deal out there it's a big deal and it's a huge challenge for for the legislation uh, for the legislators, for the game wardens, for the for the hunting public in that area, because, I mean, obviously there's a couple of low hanging fruits. There's obviously some people that got some citations because they were not doing something right. But from what I've read about it, none of these people were hunting illegally. Maybe they 
did something, yeah. you know, that they got a ticket for, like like <clears throat> like we would get a ticket for not properly unloading our shotgun coming out of a, a public area or, or not wearing our orange at the right time. It was all minor stuff like that. All these people were licensed and perfectly within their rights to be there hunting. And so, so, is, so is, your, said, is your point – go ahead. Well, I, I was going to say I've always had in my mind that, you know, our public land down this way – you know, I've, I've asked the question to some pretty high ups before. Why can't we regulate? Just, just say, I don't like mentioning public land on a podcast like this, but, but I'm gonna say, let's just say Tunica Hills, okay? Uh, why don't they regulate how many hunters can come in there on a daily basis? You know, why can't you stop it at just say 20? Cap it off at yeah. you get 20 trucks come in, either make it first come first serve or you know, or do like they're doing some of the Midwest states. I know, like the land between the lakes up in that area. There's, there's quota hunts also, but they also have, you know, you you have to call in before, you know, and kind of get drawn for this week or however some kind of way to regulate it like that, where it's not so many people on a given day. You know, like Christmas week, there's so many people on public land that. It, it, it's almost dangerous you know well it's it's that and that's that's kind of the, the the conundrum that i'm presenting is how do you do these things because inevitably this is the worst case scenario that happened in montana and the it's one of those things our, that our states down here are, are too poor you know from what i'm yeah our, well our, it's an economy our, yeah our game and fish don't have the money to pay a game warden to sit there at the gate and regulate how many people. Well, our states there. aren't willing. So let's talk about Mississippi a little bit. And this is the Louisiana Bow Hunter podcast. But, you know, a lot of us hunt in Mississippi. And, sure. and it's it's a neighbor to a lot of us that live and hunt in Louisiana. And one of the issues with Mississippi, and Glenn, I know you know this well, is there's no regulation happening there because the local governments want the economy of all of the right. out-of-state hunters that are leasing property and coming and hunting in the state, there are poor communities along the borders of Louisiana and Alabama and everywhere in the state that are benefiting. I mean, you know, over half of their yearly economy comes from, yeah. um, and, and there's the families right. that don't have much money that they pay their taxes and keep their land by leasing out the hunting rights. And sure. so mm-hmm. you ask the question of, you know, in that state, uh, very similar to what you would ask in Louisiana is like, how do we regulate and how, well, if you start regulating things, then you affect the economic benefit of hunting. And so now you have another problem with people and, uh, man, it's just hard. I mean, to me, that's why I said what I said about the seasons and stuff like that, because I, I agree with what Kyler said in that big government, and don't tread on me and all that I think is, is, is an attitude that everyone should have. And to me, the only way to the only way to offset some of that and still be um, accountable and still be at least attempting to do right by whatever it is that you're governing is to make things to me things have gotten too complicated. And and you're trying to fix one thing by changing another and you've got you know, a muzzleloader season, but a muzzleloader can be a single-shot, high-powered rifle. That's just yeah, right. stupid. Yeah, that's a joke. You yeah. know, and then and then you've got two weeks at the end of the season where 
used to be archery, but now it's primitive, and primitive ain't really primitive. No, and it's not primitive anymore. It, 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 you simplify it and be logical and say, this is what our seasons are like. This is what our, our economy is like. This is what our biology is like. And let's be simple about it. Let's have these seasons in these very cleanly defined, simple ways. And let's regulate things in the way that science and biology tells us we should. And not over, like, not, not, you know, we put in things in place that have longer term effects, I think. I feel like um, they're designed to fix or to address one thing with no mind to how they affect other things. And I think that's been going on for decades. And now we're at yeah. a system that's illogical in a lot of ways, just like the Tunica Hills thing. That the, the reasons they're giving Kyler are designed to address this one data point with no mind to how illogical it is to several other data points. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So I it's agree. complicated, and it's more complicated, I think, in a state like Louisiana for the same reason we just talked about with the destination question. It's complicated because there's so many hands in the pot. There are so many people. Yep. You know, there's so many I people that guy, are uh, vested. This past year, we had so much flooding on a lot of our public lands. Uh, a lot of the river bottom public lands that has just devastated the deer herds. And But yet, at the end of the day, they hadn't changed any of the seasons. They didn't shut anything down hardly. They're hunting it again this year after it stayed flooded almost all year last year. They're hunting it like it never happened. You know, and the people that are hunting there are hunting. It just sucks, you know. I mean, there's, there's hardly any deer. Well, why not shut the season down for about two or three years and let it rebuild, you know. And I asked a friend of mine that's, you know, pretty, he's kind of, uh, I guess you'd say, politically connected. His, he told me, I said, why don't they shut it down for about three years and, you know, let the population rebuild? He said, because once you do that and you shut it down, it would be so hard to get it back. You know, he said, to try to reverse it back like it was is going to be like pulling teeth. He said, it, it, once you get, you know, I can't remember the exact words how he put it. Uh, yeah. But... That's the problem with our state. We don't. We don't, our, our our southern states, I guess you say, all of them. We don't have the manpower to do a, to to regulate that type of thing. You know, they they just don't want to pay these game wardens. <laughs> I mean, look, I respect them more than anything in the world, but man, you know, we don't have enough of them. Period. Yeah. You know, and and it's it's just it's not regulated, like I think it should well, be anyway. Well, I want to I want to plug a, a, a super interesting podcast I listened to last week um, about regulation changes in property and whatnot. But there's a um, there's a uh, a podcast called Duck Season Somewhere, um, and they did a and I actually had to go back and check it because I listened to it twice. So, because I, I, the first time I listened to it, I said, man, I don't think I remember this guy's name. And then I checked the description, and it didn't have the guy's name in it. And then I listened to it a second time, and they never mentioned the guest's name. The title of the podcast is um, – it is uh, Federal Game Warden Discusses like the Beginnings of Theodore Roosevelt Complex. Uh, it was, it's about how 
the government essentially commandeered the land for a national wildlife refuge system in the Mississippi Delta back in the 70s and 80s. And um, it was it was essentially it was essentially stolen. They, they essentially stole the land. Um, and the premise is the government realized, hey, farm equipment's getting bigger and, and, and one person can farm more acres, more acreage in the Delta and in Mississippi in general is being converted to ag land, et cetera, woods. And so they came in and in, in a short period of time, they, um, they, I don't even know if they bought it because they never clarified, they, they stole and took the land that is now Panther Swamp, Hillside, Morgan Break, and Yazoo Count Yazoo NWR, which is all part of the Theodore Roosevelt complex. And it's a super interesting podcast about the pushback from the community in this time period, in this era. And um about how the game wardens, the federal game wardens that were there to essentially like revert these properties back to their natural state where they had to like dismantle and burn down and move cabins, hunting camps, take out deer stands, cut down fences, put up borders, all this stuff. Their, their families, like if you were a game warden and your wife wanted a job, nobody would hire you in town. The game wardens were not allowed to buy gas or groceries anywhere they had to go towns away where nobody knew them in order to go out to eat dinner and um and essentially it was a big pushback on the community and so what's interesting now is we don't hear much about like this governmental change because i don't think the com- the country is bringing on new public lands at the veracity that they did in the last 75 years but also with the age of technology we have now and the the speed in which news travels you could never get you could never get away with with acquiring land that way anymore nor could you suppress it with the media and social media that we have these days but right. that podcast was a extremely interesting um, a story from a federal game warden a federal agent who is unnamed. He's it's anonymous. I have no idea who it is. He told the story of his encounter of the first five years of those places being open and how, you know, getting shot at by the pasture at his church while he's duck hunting and, and (laughs) just people being people outlawing and not wanting to follow the rules. And, and so, you know, I also, I, if, if I'm gonna, if I'm going to, um, and I'm self-aware enough to say this. If I'm going to say that I do believe that some deer management regulation would be good for our population and for our the next generation of deer hunters for their deer population, I also am cognizant of the fact that that's a slippery slope and the government will typically take as much as they can. Um, and so I, I, I know that that's a very hypocritical, like contradicting statements, but I also, but maybe before I speak too much more on this, I need to do some research on, you know, how did Illinois get their regulations, the history lesson on that? How did Arkansas get theirs? How did Mississippi in, introduce theirs? Because, um, you know, I, I think I, that would be an interesting thing to 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 learn more about of the process of that. You know, yeah, that would be cool but, to find out. You know, like <clears throat> just say Iowa. You know, uh, I think it's 
unless you're a landowner, even a resident only gets one buck tag. Yeah, I, I could be wrong. It may be two, but I think it's only one. And for sure, you know, like if we put in for tags there, you can only get drawn as an out-of-stater maybe once every five years or four years at minimum. It's four years, yeah, four yeah, years. So, and you can only kill one buck. Uh, so, just just think if we did that here. Just think, okay, just say Louisiana statewide went to one buck per license hunter. How much better the hunting would be? Well, think yeah. about if you, I mean, the, the, the hunting would be a whole lot better, obviously. And then I've also thought about for states like Louisiana and Mississippi that have longer and more liberal seasons, for the public land as well as the general hunting, um, what if the regulations existed with more segregation between resident and non-resident. In other words, the resident hunters that are the taxpayers for the local WMAs, for the taxes that pay the state game wardens and all that, they have more rights than a non-resident hunter in the same way that many Midwestern western states do. Um, You know, for example... You, you can only you, like if, if you buy a non-resident license you have you can kill two deer on a non-resident license not six i'm just throwing out examples i'm not these are not numbers that have any kind of um you know any kind of facts or data or anything like that behind them it's just the general idea of to your point if you quoted and lotteried and limited access to public lands um if you lotteried and limited access to non-resident hunting the problem comes all the way back to economy the problem with that is yes the hunting would be a lot better and yes the people who are paying the state taxes that are funding a lot of this would you know would be benefiting in that system but the overall system would be hampered because there would be less money coming in from the hunting industry because you know the guys that are spending lots of money on hunting property and managing hunting property and months out of the year traveling to their camp across the river in Louisiana or their camp across the river in Mississippi or whatever, all of those guys would say, well, I'm, I, I, I can't, I can't spend all that money if I can only go shoot one buck, you know, for the same reason people go on outfitted hunts instead of having their own property in, in Kansas where they can only shoot one buck, you know? Um, yeah. Well, that's why I think, that's why I think, I, I actually think that, an antler restriction I agree or yeah. would be I, better I think, than yeah, would, I, I, I think 100%. like I said like I said earlier people aren't shooting 60 a year most people aren't shooting 3d a year so just because you can shoot six doesn't mean you shoot more than one and that could be for a number of reasons maybe you only had a chance to shoot one maybe you hunted your ass yeah. off but you're not very good and you only shoot one and um, but if we make it to where you can still shoot the same number of deer, but they have to be better quality or, or slightly older deer, or at least relatively more mature. Not I'm saying like five and a half year old, but like let's say you, just something as simple as you're not allowed to shoot um, a one and a half year old spike based on body size, body yeah. body. Um, Got to have age. a branched, branched antler on at least one side or whatever, you know. Yes, yeah, just something simple like that where we give these deer version of Jakes. A chance to make it to a second season 
um, I think it's a pretty immediate increase in, in deer sightings the next season and then the next two to three seasons to four seasons for sure. So um, anyway, I don't know. I know we've been well, kinda... well, like I said earlier, our, our biggest problem <clears throat> for that type of I'm on farm. The biggest issue we have down here, we don't have the manpower to enforce it. You know, yeah, yeah. It's just all of there. these things. You're right. It, and it, and uh, our neighboring our neighboring poor states have the same problem. It's even worse. It's even worse, you know. Uh, yep. So, I mean. Well, I, I, so, you know, for, for, for the sake of time, <laughs> we uh, kind of bringing the conversation back around to, to, to the topic at hand was, was, you know, the challenges and frustrations of being a bow hunter during rifle season. And I, right. I guess to kind of add some final thoughts to that before we wrap up, um, you know, my uh, listening to all of of, of of what you guys said and and some of the conversations we talked about, I, I think that I think it's important that we that we say that none of, none of what we're talking about is designed or intended to um, be pessimistic or negative or derogatory towards rifle hunting. It's not at all. We're actually going the opposite direction. We're talking strictly and directly to bow hunters because as bow right. hunters, if you choose to hunt while people are partaking in rifle season, your challenges change. And I think the the, the thing that we identify um, in this conversation, not only on this podcast, but probably a conversation similar to this that you would have with your buddies at hunting camp, is, um, you know, understand if, you, if, you, if you're struggling with some of these kind of things that we talked about and you're like, you know, I really, I want to kill a buck in the rut, and I want to do it with my bow, but I'm 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 really struggling with some of these frustrations of how hard bow hunting can be during this time of the year. Not only because of increased hunting pressure, but also just because of the changes in the in in the woods, in the deer, in in their patterns and their activities and all that. My what I would say to people, and then I, I'll ask you know what you guys think about it and what your final thought about it is. But what I would say to people is. Uh, the same thing that I say to people about turkey hunting in, in a similar conversation. You got to get to a place where it's not about killing the deer. Because yep. what Kyler said earlier and what you alluded to and some of what we've all said, there's there's a very clear psychological categories that we can put hunters in. You know, there's there, there's hunters that are in it for different reasons and two of those very plain black and white lines are guys that hunt for 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 challenge and adventure and guys that hunt because they want to kill a deer you know um however that happens it's more about putting their hands on the animal and achieving the um the goal of harvesting the animal and then you know if if you are that person that's listening to this podcast that's having some of those same frustrations that glenn had in the first part of rifle season and you're like man i'm really wanting to be committed to this but it's frustrating my challenge or not my challenge but my advice to you is just you know hey you know do what makes you happy and be an outdoorsman but just kind of keep in mind that if you're going to take on this challenge of sticking with the bow and arrow it's not just your buddy's fault or your cousin's fault because he wants to rifle hunt it's not just that you've also got to put in more work to hunt deer with a bow this time of the year because it's very different and it's not all because he's over there hunting with a rifle it's it's even if he wasn't over there hunting with a rifle the deer act differently this time of the year the woods change 
And as a bow hunter, you have to adapt to that. And the other part of my um, recommendation or, or, or whatever that I'm offering here is learn to learn to kind of get lost and wrapped up in that in in figuring that out and make that be your passion and stop worrying about the 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 kill as much as you can because there's so much personal satisfaction and enjoyment from the adventure um i think and and that's what i would tell somebody and and i have told people that same thing that's what i would tell somebody who's experiencing that this bow hunting deer and rifle season frustration yeah absolutely it's definitely it can be very frustrating but the reward at the end of the day when you are successful just like i was last week i mean look i've been i've been on the struggle bus you know all year probably the worst the best worst year i've ever had i've probably seen more deer than i've ever had you know with a two-year-old and a seven-year-old i don't get to hunt as much as i used to probably still hunt more than the average person though um Although, you know, I wasn't getting the shots or, you know, didn't didn't have the deer down that I normally do, that part of it's been frustrating, but I've had a blast, you know, with the journey, you know. Mm-hmm. And when I finally did kill one last week, I'm telling you, my chest was poked out like I was 18 years old, you know. <laughs> and uh, yeah. I, I, that part of it, uh, and it, and it wasn't, this is hard to put in words, it wasn't that I had killed that deer because he was by no means the biggest deer I've ever, you know, but it was just everything that I put into it, you know, to, to get to that point. And that's where, as soon as I've, I've always had this saying, people would be so much better off. And I'm not talking about just deer hunting, any type of hunting, duck hunting, turkey hunting, anything. As soon as people can ever grasp and get in their mind, that hunting is not a competition. It is an individual thing. You know, it's not, I'm trying to kill bigger and better deer than you did, or I'm a bow hunter, so I'm, a, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm elite or whatever. It's not a competition. You know, it, it's, it's, it's about the journey, in my opinion. That's, that's, at the end of the day, <clears throat> if, if people could ever get that, hunting is not a competition. Yep. whatsoever yep i think some of these dang hunting shows that making making hunting a competition especially in the turkey hunting world they got you know to me that that's it's just not a good thing you know it's not uh, you're absolutely i, I, agree I don't with really that. i mean not that i wouldn't do it but you'd have to pay me to do it <laughs> i'm not going to pay my own money to do that i mean it's just uh <clears throat> i think you could ever out- get past that point you know it ain't all about it ain't all about killing them, you know. Then and then, uh, it sure makes it a whole lot better. Yep, I think the outdoor media is complicit in, in the same way that outdoor media and outdoor entertainment is complicit in the rise and popularity of deer management practices. They're also complicit in the blood sport aspect of hunting yep. that does not have the intended outcome um, on a on a from a uh, standpoint of uh, a larger area, not necessarily an individual or one small portion, but uh, a blood sport competitive attitude around hunting, to your point, is not good. And it makes for good entertainment, and it's low-hanging fruit. But the media yeah. and the outdoor industry, 
and, and especially with duck hunting and turkey hunting, is complicit in creating that sort of culture in the same way that I'll give them credit for being complicit in making deer management practices popular. They have. Yeah. And they've made right. bow hunting popular. They have. Yeah. They've made bow hunting popular. Watching people hunt with a bow and watching them experience all these things that we're talking about and we're encouraging people to experience for themselves, getting to see it and not just hear us talk about it, is one step closer to actually experiencing yourself. So, um, you know, as bow hunters and all, I think we're all in that together. So, good points. I agree with you. Kyler, do you have anything yep. left? Anything left? To, or have we beaten it all half to death? No, I've, I've already said too much now. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, well, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Yeah, Merry Christmas and yep. Happy New Year's. Definitely. This podcast is going to drop on Christmas morning, so a big thank you to those that are listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter podcast on Christmas Day. An extra thank you to you because you are a trooper, and we greatly appreciate all of you following along. And uh, as I said in the intro, um, we wish you all a Merry Christmas, and we thank you a lot for being the Louisiana Bowhunter community and for helping us in a very difficult year, Louisiana Bowhunter has had a good year and i think our hunting community has had a pretty good year and and uh, i personally am grateful and thankful that we live in a country and in a part of the country that hunting is still so accepted and so appreciated and uh and and taken care of and even though we talk about some of the negatives we got it pretty good guys we got it pretty good well said so anyway so thank you guys again for jumping on here tonight and doing this during the holiday season. And thank you all you guys for listening. Have a Merry Christmas. And the next time you hear from us, it will be 2021. So you guys have a good night. Take care. Merry Christmas, guys. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. If you have anybody you'd like to hear on the show, reach out to us at info at louisianabowhunter.com. And if you want to help support Louisiana Bowhunter, go by your local archery shop and pick up some merchandise. If you don't have any at your local shop, let us know and we'll reach out to them. Or pick up your gear at louisianabowhunter.com and we'll ship it out to you same day. See you next week.